we're continuing with our study in the life of Jesus. And last week we saw John the Baptist's ministry and mission begin to wind down as Jesus steps into the spotlight. And in the timeline of events, it's right before our topic of study today that John the Baptist is arrested and thrown in prison. And the reason for this is the Herod family. The Herod family story and family tree is like a plot line from an HBO show that none of you should be watching to begin with. It is just sordid, sordid stuff. And so I'll see if I can keep this all straight while I try and explain this. So while Jesus is on the earth, the Roman Empire is at the height of its power. It's at its absolute pinnacle in its heyday and they ruled the land of Israel and the king they appointed to rule over most of the area of Israel was a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great is probably most well known for being the king who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was an infant. The magi, the wise men came to him. That's Herod the Great, the ruler of the area of Israel. So Herod married a woman named Doris and they had a son. But while the son was still young, Herod became convinced that they were scheming to eventually take over his throne, so he killed both of them. Herod then marries a woman named Miriam, and they have two sons who actually make it all the way to adulthood. One of their sons is named Aristobulus, and he has a daughter named Herodias. Herod was paranoid that they were, you guessed it, scheming to steal his throne, so he has Miriam and their two sons killed as well, but he allows his granddaughter Herodias to continue living. Herod then married Miriam II, I guess he has a type, and they had a son named Philip. Philip marries Herodias, his half-niece. Appropriate reaction is, ew. Herod then goes on and marries a woman named Meltes or Melthes, and they have two sons. One of those sons is named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas takes over ruling part of Israel when his father dies. He actually rules the region of Galilee, which is some of the area where Jesus grew up and was raised. At some point in time, Herod Antipas, who's ruling this region of Galilee after Herod the Great has died, goes to visit his half-brother Philip, who's a wealthy businessman in Rome. Philip is the guy who's married to Herodias. While he's there... Herod Antipas falls head over heels in lust with Herodias, seduces her, convinces her to leave his half-brother Philip and come back to him, come back with him to Galilee. So she goes on to half-uncle number two. I think we'd all agree this is pretty messed up. And the crazy part is I'm only sharing a fraction of the Herod family tree with you. It just goes on and on and on. And John the Baptist did his ministry mostly in the region that Herod Antipas was ruling. And John was a vocal critic of his lifestyle because he's ruling over God's country. He's ruling over God's people, and he's flagrantly living in sin and disobedience to the laws of God. And so John the Baptist would be a very, very vocal critic against him in his teachings. The Bible tells us that Herod Antipas actually respected John because he knew, he could tell this guy is a man of God. There's something about this guy. He would have executed John for speaking out against him, but even Herod Antipas feared God enough to get the sense that that's probably not a good idea. Herodias, however, is this super ambitious woman who who came back to Galilee with Herod Antipas because she has great political ambition. And she's furious with John. She hates him and wants him dead. 
So Herod Antipas throws John in prison because one, he knew that the Jews revered John as a prophet and he thought they'd probably riot if he killed John. Secondly, he recognized John was a man of God. He didn't really want to kill him, so he put him in prison as a half measure to placate his wife Herodias without killing John. We're going to find out that eventually John the Baptist is going to be executed through some trickery that happens through Herodias. But that's how John ends up in prison. He's in prison. And that's where we pick up our study today. We're going to be in John chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to go back to Galilee, most likely because Jesus is at risk of being arrested by being a contemporary of John the Baptist. If you were arresting somebody for speaking out against you, it wouldn't be uncommon to find out who are their best friends, who's the crowd that they roll with, who are likely to pick up the same battle cry and continue the same message. So you just round them all up and throw them into prison. They were closely connected. So most likely the Holy Spirit is having Jesus leave this region and lie low for a few days so that he doesn't get arrested along with John. You'll notice the phrase in verse 4, it says he needed to go through Samaria. And the Samaritans were the people who lived in Samaria, and Samaria is right between Judea and Galilee. So Israel is a country, if you can picture in your mind, it's sort of a sliver that runs north to south. You have Judea in the south, you have Galilee in the north, and then you have Samaria smack in the middle. And the Jews and Samaritans had hated each other for around 700 years at this point. We're going to talk about why in a minute. But when I say hated, I mean most Jews traveling between Galilee and Judea would double the length of their journey by two to three days just to walk around Samaria to the east or the west instead of going through it. And let me just point out, when you're willing to do that much additional exercise just to avoid somebody, there's a serious, serious level of hatred there. I mean, there's not many people that I dislike enough to do that much exercise for. But they would do it. They would go all the way around this region of Samaria. But Jesus needed to go through Samaria. We're going to find that the Holy Spirit is leading him to do this because he has a divine appointment, a God-planned encounter with a Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. So why did the Jews and Samaritans hate each other? We've got to go back sev- several hundred years to do this, and this is going to give us the context, the framework for what we're talking about today. And it's really important because the context changes everything. So we go back several hundred years, and after Solomon, who was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, When he died, the northern tribes of Israel, the northern part of Israel, rebelled and revolted, and Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the inhabitants of the northern kingdom, out of bitterness towards the south, stopped going to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, which was in the south. They didn't really want to acknowledge that this was the place where they were supposed to be worshiping. They didn't want to have to go deal with that, confront them, so they just stopped doing that. And ultimately, the Assyrian Empire comes into the north and takes them captive. And the Syrians were brilliant military tacticians. And they had a standard policy when they went in and invaded a country. They would leave part of the population there, but they would take the vast majority out and divide them up into other corners of their kingdom. 
And the reason they would do this was to break down the ethnic and cultural and national identity of all of their captives. Because if you keep them all together in one place, they're always going to be a risk to revolt because they're always going to remember we are from Israel, we're Israelites, we've got to go back there. But if you can break down that identity suddenly they become a lot less of a risk. So they'd send them to all corners of the kingdom and they would do this with all the other nations and countries and territories that they had invaded. They would co-mingle all of the nationalities and they would eventually begin to co-mingle and create new ethnicities, new families, and the national identity would break down and they would just become Assyrians mentally. And so that's what goes on. And they do the same thing in the territory of northern Israel. They send a whole bunch of people from other countries in there to commingle and break down that ethnic identity. And this is what a Samaritan was. It was a strange mix of Jewish traditions to some extent, commingled with lots of other stuff from other religions and cultures. A Samaritan was sort of Jewish, but not quite. Sort of like a half Jew in a sense. And eventually the southern kingdom of Israel is captured by Babylon and they're taken away. Almost the entire population of the south is taken away into exile in Babylon. After 70 years, they come back and the Samaritans in the north immediately try to form an alliance with them, a peace treaty. Let's be military partners. The returning full-blooded Jews say no way. They don't want anything to do with them. And this causes a deep bitterness to take root in the northern Samaritans. Later on, Manasseh, who was the son of the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem, a full-blooded Jew, contrary to their own laws, married the daughter of the chief of the Samaritans. And when the full-blooded Jews in the south demanded that he either break it off or step down from the priesthood, he fled to his father-in-law in in the north, who gave him an honorable reception. And then by permission of Alexander the Great, Manasseh builds a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And he and his whole lineage after him officiate as high priests in rivalry to the temple that's down in the south. So the Samaritans are sort of going back to their Jewishness, but they wanted to avoid the temple in Jerusalem. So they create their own version of all of this, which leads to some confusion in the minds of all the people there. They're thinking, are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem in the south or on Mount Gerizim in the north? And the Samaritans claimed that they were the true Israel. They had a temple of their own. They offered sacrifices there. They they believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, but they didn't accept the rest of Scripture. They had their own scriptural writings that they held to. The full-blooded Jewish rabbis said that eating with a Samaritan was like eating swine's flesh. Classy compliment, right, if you know how Jews feel about pork. It's kind of a big, big insult And so that's the context here. They want nothing to do to each other. They will avoid each other at all costs. But Jesus, verse 4, needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, So he, Jesus, came to a city in Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so Jesus journeys to Samaria, to this town of Sychar, sits down by the well. 
Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, a man named Jacob had dug the well, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, coat of many colors, you might remember him. And he's a very, very important part of Jewish history, and both the Samaritans in the north and the Jews in the south claim Jacob as part of their lineage. And so Jesus chooses this cultural touchpoint, this well, which embodies much of the hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. He chooses this place as the location where he's going to meet this woman. And don't miss the fact that it says Jesus was wearied. He was wearied. You might want to underline that. Because never forget that Jesus, when he's on the earth, emptied himself of all his divine power. And everything he did, he did by the power of the same Holy Spirit that resides in you and I. Everything he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit as a model to us. He was fully human with human limitations. And he got tired just like we do. And he sits down because he's tired. It's about the middle of the day, noon-wise, if you're wondering. In verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And throughout this entire interaction, the conversation is going to be centered on water, the metaphor of water. Very simply, you can put this on your outlines. Water is the essential element of life. It's the essential element of life. It's an absolute necessity. You can't live without it no matter what your moral position. And Jesus is going to use it as a metaphor. And remember, Jews viewed anyone who was non-Jewish as a dog or a phrase the rabbis like to use, kindling for hell. Again, super kind people. And so Jesus is there in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of Samaritan territory, and, and most Jews view Samaritans as being halfway there in their minds. So it's scandalous that he's even talking to this woman. Never mind that she's a Samaritan woman. Never mind that she has a bad reputation, which we're going to find out she has. And never mind the fact that they're alone, which was rabbinically prohibited. So understand that Jesus has broken through multiple ethnic, cultural, and social barriers just by asking her this question. He's just completely obliterated his reputation because Jesus didn't care about his reputation. He cared about his father's approval. And a quick side note, men just... Please remember that even though he was human, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. More full of the Holy Spirit than any of you are or I am. So married men, don't go meeting up with some woman one-on-one to talk about their deepest secrets in the name of ministry. Because you're not that spiritual, okay? You're just not. Single men, don't do that either. Just man up and ask them out, okay? Don't use ministry as an excuse to go out on a date with a woman. Just ask them out, okay? Just a little aside. And I noticed something else here as well. The Holy Spirit has arranged for Jesus and this woman to have a one-on-one conversation. And we'll see here that this is the heart of the father for his lost kids. This is the good father. This is the father working through Jesus and the Holy Spirit saying, we need to talk about your life. Do you know that God's never out to publicly shame or embarrass you? He's never out to do that. He's the perfect father. And sometimes we need a slap on the back of the head. Amen. And sometimes we need to be invited to sit down for a while and talk. God fathers us. And that's what he's doing with the Samaritan woman right now. You'll notice that Jesus sends his disciples to buy food, which would have been shocking to them. You just put yourselves in their situations. They're Jewish teenage boys. It had to be like, where do you think we're going? I think we're going to Samaria. Is he crazy? I can't believe mom's going to kill me. I know. Don't tell her about it. So they're on their way to to Samaria, which is shocking already. They get there, and Jesus says, oh, go buy some food. And they're thinking, like, from a Samaritan? Like, that they've touched? 
Jesus is like, yeah, I'm hungry. Go, go get some food, you know. So they would have been shocked by this, but there's this sense that anything can happen when you're with Jesus. Verse 9, it says, Then a woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And she's just acknowledging everything we've been discussing. But she's shocked by something else that you might miss. She's shocked that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, has put himself in the position to be rejected by her. He said, give me some water. He's empowered her to say, get it yourself, Jewish scum. He's allowed himself to be put in that situation. And she, she's shocked by this. And you know that God still does the same thing today. God doesn't force himself on anybody. It is so unbelievable to me that God gives us the option to reject him. He gives us that option today sits down and says let's talk about your life and we have the choice to engage or to say no i don't want to do that and reject him it's still the same deal today as we're going to find out jesus may very well be the first man who's ever spoken to this woman who didn't have ulterior sexual motives he's probably going to be the first guy to ever speak to her without those motives And is Jesus being rude by asking her to draw him water instead of drawing water for her? No, you see, Jesus is always asking us to give to him rather than taking from us because he wants our heart. He doesn't want our stuff. He wants our heart. He wants to help this woman understand what happens when we put things in his hands. That's what he wants. He said, I want to teach you about what happens when you put things in my hands. Watch what I do with them. Our heart, our life, our past, our issues, our sin, it always ends up being to our benefit when we put things in the hands of God. Every single time. God has wired us all in such a way that Matthew 6.21 is true for all of us. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus wants to give her a lesson about putting the things that she cares about in his hands. That's why God asks us to give to him, just like we were talking about. It's so important that we invest our lives in him because when we do that, our lives become oriented around him and we begin to care deeply about the things that he cares about. So when we worship after this message, you're gonna have a chance to give your praise and worship to God. And it's so important that we do that because if we don't give it to God, we'll give it to something or someone else. And so when we give it to God, everything gets focused on him. Everything gets focused around him. Don't just let the time pass by. I would encourage you to walk out of here today empty from giving God everything because you're going to find that God's going to fill you right back up in a fresher and newer way. If you're struggling to connect with God, put this on your outline. If you're struggling to connect with God, invest in your relationship with him. Invest in your relationship with him. Invest time, invest energy, invest money, and watch what happens. You'll suddenly care about it because you're invested in it. You'll suddenly care about it. Verse 10, it says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. Jesus is hearkening back to the words of the prophet Jeremiah from hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah wrote this. He said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
That verse, every time I read it, just, just wrecks me. Because God is speaking to his people. He says, you've done two evil things. One is you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And instead, you've made for yourselves water containers, broken containers that can't even hold water. If you're wondering what a cistern is, it's, it's basically a carved out container or box many times into, the hill, into a hill or into a building or into the natural countryside just for catching and collecting liquids, kind of like a reservoir. But the captured water is not living water, right? It's stagnant. And a lot of the times the cisterns would crack on the bottom and be rendered useless because all the water would drain out. And they'd actually end up using them as tombs. God's saying, I have living water. I have living water. And all you have to do is ask me for it. And I'll give it to you. But you've rejected it. And instead, you've worked hard to carve out your own cistern. You've told yourself that you'll catch enough water to never go thirsty again with this cistern. But your water is stagnant. It's leaking. And eventually, you're going to be buried in it. So ask me for living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Jesus is speaking metaphorically. She's not connecting the dots. Verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Still thinking about physical water, but Jesus is speaking about her deepest spiritual need. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Do you realize this is true of everything in life except Jesus? Everything in life except Jesus will leave you thirsty. Everything. We're so easily deceived into believing that what will really satisfy us is something else, a a relationship, a raise, a different job, more recognition, more success, whatever it is. If it's not Jesus, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And that's the problem with material things and earthly pursuits is they, they don't satisfy. Momentarily, we think they do, but then we find out they leave us thirstier than ever before. When we spend time with Jesus, our soul is satisfied. It's satisfied. And we're reminded that everything else leaves us thirsty. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking, hey, you know what, I'm a Christian. Why am I dissatisfied? Why am I thirsty? Let let me speak to you from experience in my own life. This has just been true for me. You know, the problem is that Sometimes we like to go back to those old wells, even after we found Jesus, that don't have living water. And once you've tasted living water, the old wells become even more dissatisfied. Once you've tasted living water, the old wells become even more dissatisfying, and they leave you emptier than ever before. Jesus uses the metaphor of living water, flowing water. It's water that flows through your life. It's it's never meant to be stagnant. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit in us is meant to be like a spring of living water. There's this constant flow of God's life coming out of us as we serve others and live for him, pouring out of our lives. And we all run into problems when God's Spirit is poured out of our lives, but we stop the flow of the Holy Spirit within us. We stop the flow of the Holy Spirit within us then we're dry and we're stagnant and we're bitter 
and the life dries up. And suddenly we're trying to share water that, that we don't even have ourselves. And I'm nowhere near perfect, but I know that I need to be filled with God's living water every single day. And God designed us that way. If you haven't figured it out yet, he designed us for a daily relationship with him. There's a reason why God didn't make it so that we could come to church, have a great experience with God, and be good for a month. There's a reason he didn't make us that way. He made us so that the most that we could really have, the most that we could really hold within us, is enough for today. That's our capacity, enough for today. And the reason for that is so that we would go back to him tomorrow because what he values is a relationship with us we're his children and many of us for years and years and years maybe for most of our lives keep repeating the same pattern of getting full and then withdrawing for a week and then wondering why a week later we feel so disconnected from God why do I feel so dry why does this just feel empty it's because we have the capacity for one day one day, that's all. I've learned that in my life, I'll, I'll sometimes be frustrated and dissatisfied. And, and I'll even think to myself and tell other people, I can't figure out what it is. I have no idea. And yet in the spiritual world, the reality is my, my life is just a dry riverbed. If I could see into the spiritual, it would be immediately obvious what the problem is. I haven't been receiving that living water. I've stopped the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life. And if you're like me, you love to convince yourself that it's something else. You love to do it. You know, you even go to other people and like, pray for me. I can't figure out what it is. Whenever anybody says that now, I, I, if, if I'm honest, I just ask them, how's your relationship with God? Oh, that's not it. How's your relationship with God? Well, I haven't really spent time with him for like a month. You don't think that's connected? Like, you don't think there's a connection between those two things? Nah, nah, it's probably something else. 99% of the time, that's what it is. You know, in my own life, anytime I want to complain about something, what usually shuts me up is the thought, have I even prayed about this? Have I even prayed about it? Well, I did once like three months ago. Man, haven't been going back to that living water. Haven't been getting filled up again. How many of us, if we're honest, there's something, there's a breakthrough we would love to see God do in our lives. There's something we're praying for, but if we're honest, we're not praying for it anywhere close to it every day we might complain about it every day we might worry about it every day we might stress about it and fix our mind on it every day and dwell on it and meditate on it but we don't take it to god every day every single day that's always the right place to start always start by checking your connection to the living water the source of life verse 15 it says the woman said to him sir give me this water that i may not thirst nor come here to draw. Like most of us, the woman doesn't understand what Jesus is really offering her. She doesn't understand her deepest need is spiritual. She's just thinking, this is awesome. I won't have to come back to this well every day if I get this magic water. And we do the same thing where we're like, God, if you could just fix this relationship, then that would be good. Just solve my practical need. And what God says is he says, no, no you've got a need deeper than that. And if we can address that deep need, all this other stuff is going to be taken care of. But we've got to address this deep need, not just the symptoms of this deep need in your life. We've got to go right to the source and go to work on that. 
We're going to see the woman constantly try and shift the focus to something other than Jesus. But Jesus is fixed on his agenda, which is her deepest need. And so Jesus decides to make it more personal. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Jesus is actually being a little bit sarcastic. And we're going to find out why in a minute. But the issue is this woman needs to confront her own sin. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. She's still not being completely honest with Jesus. So Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. You imagine her shock when Jesus said that. He's like, You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the guy you're with now, he's not your husband. That sort of elevates the level of intimacy in this conversation pretty quickly, right? Jesus, in the most loving and yet direct and honest way, Jesus is saying, let's cut to the chase. Your life is a train wreck. It's a train wreck. You've tried to satisfy yourself. You've given it your best shot. And look at where you are. It's not working. It's time for you to start being honest with yourself. And every person who comes to Jesus and decides to follow him must first respond to the invitation to be honest with themselves about their need for him. You know what stops people coming to Jesus? It's thinking that we're better than we really are. The belief that I'm already a good person. I don't need God. And the real truth is that as believers, we should be the most humble people on earth because the starting point of our faith, our entire belief system is based on the starting point that we need God, that we need him. We are messed up in a way that we cannot fix ourselves. That's the starting point of Christianity, right? That's the first rung on the ladder. And Jesus is simply inviting her to have this realization. You could put this on your outline. God already knows. God already knows. Did you catch that? He he already knows. He knows her deepest, darkest, most shameful secret. God already knows. And Jesus wants her to know that he knows so that he can shame her. No, no. Jesus wants her to know that he knows so that she knows everything he's saying to her. He's saying to her with full knowledge of who she really is he's saying these things to her and he's not going to take them back when he finds out about the skeletons in the closet and he wants her to know i already know i already know we know this but sometimes we don't act like we know this god already knows we're not keeping any secrets from him This, for me, is one of the most moving aspects about the love of God. It it changes the way you view God when you realize that everything in the Bible, the creation of man, every single sin that you and I did, all of those things, God knew about them before he even created the world. He knew. He had absolute foreknowledge. And it changes the way you read the Bible when you read it And remember, God said all of these things about me. He did all of these things for me, knowing the worst things I'd ever do. Knowing the worst things I'd ever think. He knew all that when he said this. There's no secret that I have from God. He said those things, he did those things, he promised those things, knowing everything that I would ever do. When you understand that, 
It is absolutely mind-blowing how much God loves us. Absolutely mind-blowing. When he went to the cross, he knew. He knew that most of the time we'd take it for granted. He knew that most of the time we'd still put our kingdom above his. But he did it anyway because he loves us. Absolutely blows my mind. And that's why we can come boldly before God because he knows everything, past, present, future. He knows it all. You don't ever need to go to God and say, I need to tell you something you might not know about. He already knows. What God is waiting for is for us to deal with it honestly. For us to say, you you already know God. And I need to deal with it with you. I need to ask you to forgive me. Or I need to ask you to heal me. God's just waiting for us to be honest with him because he, he already knows. He knows everything. Ordinary woman during this time would go and get their water early in the day before it got hot. But this woman is at the well in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. And now we know why. Because going to the well in the morning was their version of going to Starbucks. It was the gossip mill. It was everything that was going on in the city and the town. And she would have been bullied if she had gone. She's a social outcast even among the outcast Samaritans. She's an outcast among outcasts. And so she's there alone in the middle of the day. What I love is that Jesus never stops at any point in the story and strategizes. He doesn't say, you know, if there's an outcast in this town, they're probably going to be at the well in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. So I'll be there so that I can have this God encounter with them. Jesus just goes because he feels the Holy Spirit leading him to go there. He goes to the well because he's thirsty, not because he has a vision. But when Jesus is just going through his day being led by the Holy Spirit, he ends up in this conversation with this woman. And when you're being led by God in your daily life, you're going to find yourselves in incredible situations and conversations that God is going to open up for you. It's a great thing to pray every day, God, just help me to recognize the opportunities that you're giving me. Help me to recognize the situations that you're putting me in because God is always working to bring about things that are going to bring people to him, always. As a small side point, I just want you to notice in verse 18 that Jesus distinguishes between being married and living together. I'm not going to make a big deal about this, but I just want you to notice that it's in the Bible. He distinguishes between her having five husbands and not being married to the guy that she's with. And it's just important to know that Jesus doesn't view them as the same thing. He distinguishes between being married and simply living together. We're going to find that this woman clearly has a profound gift of stating the obvious because in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Great work, Captain Obvious. I mean, really outstanding stuff. So she's beginning to feel convicted and understands that something profound is happening. Her understanding is growing. So she quickly changes the topic away from her immorality to a discussion on theology. She's smart. It's a great way to get a Christian away from the real issues. Just talk about theology. You ever noticed this before? People want to talk more about impersonal issues rather than their own lives. Let's talk about the grand things God's doing in the universe. Let's not talk about what he's doing in my life. That's a little too personal for me. So that's what she's doing here. So she goes straight to the big Samaritan Jew issue. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And she's pointing to the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
Jesus is actually going to address that issue, but he's going to do it later. Right now, he's not going to allow her to be distracted from the conversation he wants to have. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. In other words, neither of them. You, the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. This is about as black and white as Jesus could have been on the issue. He says clearly that salvation comes from the Jews. He's speaking about himself. Jesus is Jewish. He's our Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. Once again, we see Jesus modeling the all-important truth. And this is on your outlines. This is huge. The truth does not care whether or not you find it offensive. The truth does not care whether or not you find it offensive. Do you realize we have an epidemic today around the issue of truth in our culture? Because the guiding factor in most people's definition of truth is whether or not they find it offensive. The real question is not, is it true? The question is, is it appropriate culturally, socially? And if anyone desires to genuinely pursue truth, they have to be open to the possibility it may be offensive to them. It may be offensive. This is why the Bible says that the gospel, it says Jesus is a stumbling stone for some people. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing is what the Bible says. It's ridiculous. But to us who are being saved, it's the glory of God. And so the gospel, when it's presented in reality, either makes you realize who you really are and be honest with yourself and recognize your need for Jesus, or if you hear the actual gospel, it should offend you. Those are really the only two options. Either you recognize the truth or you're horribly offended because the gospel says that compared to God, you're a terrible person and you're going to hell and you need his help. You need a savior. And if you don't hear that and go, I do, The only other real option is, no, I'm not. What an offensive thing to say. But Jesus tells her, he's like, hey, I hate to break it to you. Salvation's coming from the Jews. Deal with it, you know. But the good news is, he's there with salvation. He's there with salvation. Don't ever forget that our Savior's Jewish. The Bible you have in your hands was written by Jews. Our salvation came from the Jews, and Jesus said that Christianity is simply the continuation of Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. And I say remember that because there's a reason why the world generally hates Jews. And it's a spiritual reason. It's been going on for centuries. So always make sure that we remember Jesus is Jewish. He's Jewish. It's important to remember that. Verse 23, Jesus continues and he says, But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is speaking about his coming death, resurrection, and ascension. He's telling her that it's all about to change. Where you worship is about to become irrelevant. True worshipers won't be identified by where they worship, but who they worship. True worshipers will worship the Father through Jesus. You'll notice God seeks and desires our worship, this verse says. Why? Why does God desire our worship? Because he's good. Because he's good. Let me me explain. 
you might think, man, isn't it a little, a little bit insecure of God to say that he wants our worship? Does he just need affirmation? Or Here's the reality. Everybody is worshiping something. Everybody's worshiping something. All of us in this room right now in our lives, there's something or things or people that we are worshiping. We are. And who we worship defines us. God is quite simply the greatest thing any human being can worship. He's the most worthy and most deserving object of worship in the universe. And worshiping the wrong thing, worshiping lesser things, will lead you to disappointment, frustration, emptiness, and ultimately death. So, logically, if God is good, if he's a loving father, then God will make sure that we worship the very best thing, the most worthy thing. And it happens to be himself. If God is good, he'll instruct us to worship him, not the lesser things, because it's for our benefit. That's why God desires our worship. That's why he tells us to worship him. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, well, spirit simply refers to our our spiritual connection with God. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about worship, that one-on-one relationship with the Lord. And truth refers to the things we do, the way we live, how we act, and God's word. So if you only worship in spirit, if you only worship in spirit, if it's all prayer and worship and esoteric, if you only worship in spirit, you'll have a great time, but your life won't have a foundation because it won't be built on God's word. You'll have good intentions, but you'll get caught up in all kinds of weird beliefs, and you'll be very easily misled, because you won't know what the Bible says. You won't know what's true and what's not. But if you only worship in truth, you'll behave like a good person, and you'll know your Bible, but you'll have no real relationship with the Lord. You'll become legalistic, just going through the motions and knowing your stuff, but with a profound lack of love for Jesus. You'll become a Pharisee is what you'll become. So God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth, both knowing the word, living the word in intimate relationship with Jesus. And we see as well another occurrence here of the word must. You might remember there were three musts in John chapter three, and we see one here in John chapter four, which means it's a non-optional thing. This is the must of the worshiper. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth must worship in spirit and truth. It's the only way God desires to be worshiped. That means we don't get to say, I'm not really a reader, so I don't really do the Bible thing. I'm a worshiper, so I just love to worship. I just love to pray and be out in nature and talk to God, but the Bible's not really my thing. We don't get to say that. Also means we don't get to say, hey, you know, the Bible is my thing. I love it. That's where I find God. I don't really pray. I'm not really a worshiper, so I don't really get into that a whole lot. God says, no, 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 it's, it, it's gotta be both. It's got to be both. It's got to be evidenced in your life, the way you live. It's got to be in your mind, your understanding of God's word. It's got to be in your spirit. They've all got to be engaged with God. God says that's the kind of worship that must happen from people who call themselves worshipers of God. It has to be that way. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She doesn't understand everything Jesus is saying, but she knows that the Messiah is coming and he'll explain everything. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The subtext of what Jesus is saying is, you have me. You have Messiah. I'm him. There's nothing more that's needed. And Jesus is actually referring all the way back to the Old Testament when God appeared to Moses. 
Some of you might remember the story. There's the burning bush, and God's voice speaks out of the burning bush to Moses to tell him to go and lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And the conversation goes like this. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And in the original text, Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am. I am, is what he's saying. Don't miss this, because Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah. He's saying, I am the Christ. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the same God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. That's who I am. And next week, we're going to see the disciples' response to all of this. But we just want to wrap up staying focused on the Samaritan woman and her village. So we're going to skip down to verse 28. It says, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. I love this one little note that's in verse 28. It just says, The woman then left her water pot. She left her water pot. It's an illogical thing to do, right? She doesn't have an infinite supply of water pots. But God causes this to happen, causes it to get written down in John's gospel because we know that her water pot represents the stagnant water, the broken cistern. And so how does her encounter with Jesus end? It ends with her leaving that behind, turning her back on it, walking away from it because she has living water now. She has everything that she needs and she just leaves it and goes off to tell people what God has done for her. And I want us to notice that that is her testimony. Her testimony is, this is what Jesus did for me. Her testimony is, this is what Jesus did for me. And that's your testimony. You know, your testimony is not an irrefutable argument for the existence of God. That's a different ministry, and that's a valid ministry, but that's not your testimony. Your testimony is, this is what God did for me. And so you don't ever have to worry when it comes to your testimony that your testimony isn't articulate enough or that someone's going to argue back because nobody can argue against what God has done for you. And that's all God asks us to share. He says, tell them what I did for you. Tell them what I did for you. In verse 29, we see that her attitude has changed from calling him man to calling him sir to calling him prophet and now calling him Christ. And then let's skip down to verse 39. It says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. I think that's just cool. They're like, Jesus, can you stick around a few days? And Jesus goes, yeah, all right. And he sticks around two days. He just hangs out with them. Being a disciple is an incredible adventure and you're going to find yourself in places over the course of your life that you never imagined or ever conceived of when you follow God. You're going to find yourself in amazing places, unexpected places. Verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. And I want you to catch the progression here. Did you notice that her testimony doesn't get any of them saved? Did you notice that? They don't hear her testimony and give their lives to Jesus. 
Her testimony causes them to check out Jesus. That's what the testimony does. They encounter Jesus for themselves. Then they believe because of what Jesus does in their lives. So I want to encourage you, when you share your testimony, maybe release yourself of the pressure you've put on yourself to be like, I don't share my testimony because I don't know how to close the deal. You know, I'm supposed to lead him to Jesus. Like, I haven't figured out how to lead somebody to Jesus in five minutes at Starbucks yet either. I haven't. But when there's somebody that you invite to church, all you have to do is just tell them, hey, can I just share something with you? I just want to tell you what's going on in my life. This is what God's done for me. He's, he's done great things for me. And, you know, I care about you. I just want to invite you to check this out. Would you just come and check this out? That's it. I mean, especially as Canadians, we're so politically correct. Like, no one's really going to interrupt you, right? You know? So you just keep going, you know? They might try it, and they'll be like, you know, I'm not really interested. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please finish. So we're probably the perfect country for really sharing your testimony because we're the most polite country in the world, I think. So remember that. But just take the pressure off. You don't have to lead the person to Jesus. You're called to point the person to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. They might not even come to church with you, but you've succeeded because you've shared with them, this is what Jesus did for me. And now in their minds, they're beginning to form this idea, this is what Jesus does for people. I met this person, and I heard what Jesus did in their life. I met this person, and I heard what Jesus did in their life. Maybe 10 years later, they finally break, and they go, I wonder if I can have a story like that. I wonder if Jesus would do that for me. As I said, next week we're going to look at this whole event through the eyes of the disciples. And you can read the other verses in chapter 4 if you want to get ready for next week. But there's so much in this interaction between the Samaritan woman and Jesus that speaks to us today. You know, our hearts will always be passionate about the things we invest in. And so I just want to ask, what are you investing your life in? If, If a stranger were to take a look at your life, look at where you put your time, where you put your energy, where you put your money, where you put your talent, what would that stranger come to the conclusion that you're investing in? What would his conclusion be? Is your hope in life, in a cistern that you're building, or the living water that only God can give you? And if you're feeling dissatisfied in life, are you returning back to old wells, hoping to find satisfaction? He already knows everything about you, everything. And everything he says to you in his word is for you. No asterisk, no disclaimer. But God needs you to be honest with yourself. He knows everything. Is he waiting for me to be honest with myself before him? And finally, God seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. How's your worship? Are you a spirit worshiper, a truth worshiper, or do do you worship both? Do you worship with both?